0: Acts chapter 2 is where uh, we are this morning, uh, verses 22 through 36. I, I I like the way the Lord works things out because he's way smarter than us. You know, the focus this morning of our worship service on Jesus is kingship. It's been an interesting week in the life of our nation this week, um, to say the least. In fact, I was telling my wife, I can't remember a more kind of just surreal experience just kind of being out and about since probably nine eleven. Just the sense of just everyone kind of walking around in the days. Um, we all have different reactions. the The consistent kind of almost, I would say, cliche reaction that you get from Christians is you know the, a thousand posts about Jesus being king this week, right? And I I love I love and God, we Chris and I did not plan on I don't think maybe he did but uh, I mean we're I don't yeah you know, we're not maybe that bright or that well thought out in regards to uh, having this as a theme for worship the week after election the election um, but God in his timing worked it out that it wouldn't simply remain a social media post that it wouldn't simply remain as kind of a cliche thing we 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 say, no matter what we feel about the election, but that we would actually come in and ponder for thirty minutes about the greatness of our king and god is God is really good and then. Um, We also didn't connect this passage, and we don't necessarily try to connect our worship orders to the the, the preaching of the word other than the the song of response, but we come this morning to look at Jesus' lordship as well this morning, his kingship, so I think it's appropriate and and grateful to the Lord for working those things out for our church. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 36 is where we're going this morning in God's word as we continue our walk through this uh, great book learning about the early church and God and Jesus' kingship and rule, even uh, from heaven. We'll pick up in verse 22. You read along in your Bibles as I read out loud. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus... "...and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption." Pick it up in verse 32, or continuing in verse 32. "...this Jesus, raised, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing." For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And ending with verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. This sends the reading of God's holy and and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God may it stand forever. Um, If you were to start an organization or go to a meeting um, in which it's kind of the introductory meeting for you as you're kind of trying to get involved in an organization, you would probably find, just like we have here, uh, we have something called the Discovery Class, you would find there at that first meeting or those that initial introduction to the organization, or if you were running the organization, you would try to make clear what it is your organization is about, what is the message that you believe in. And that is what Peter is doing here this morning. This is um, our second installment of looking at the first sermon of the Christian church as Peter gets up on the day of Pentecost and preaches to the people in Jerusalem. And he is going to give us here, and what he provides for us are the essentials of the Christian faith, what the church is to be about, what you as a Christian are to be about, and what you are to believe that's what we're going to look at this morning. And he begins, I'm going to, have to give it to you in three ways this morning. First, he simply gives a quick outline or a basic con- the basic content of the Christian message. Then he's going to show us the kind of key claim that we're going to see here in this message. And then finally, he's going to show us the main points that he wants to get across, the Christian message. So if you want to know what the Christian message is, this is a great place To start. And so that's where we'll start this morning. The basic content of the Christian message. If you were to proclaim the gospel to someone, if you were to say, This is what the gospel is, what would you say? Now, that has been a topic of great discussion, particularly the last couple of years. Many, many books have come out that essentially have this title, What is the gospel? And we all have different ways of saying it. I think the greatest, I have a longhand way of saying it, but I think. The shortest hand way of saying it is stated by John Stott, which is this, God saves sinners. That's the gospel in its most nutshell form. But I think Peter provides us a great understanding of the gospel and outline of it as well. You could do way worse than what he provides here today. See, a number of years ago, there was a scholar named um, C.H. Dodd who wrote a book called The Apostolic Preaching and Its Developments. Sounds interesting, right? no. Uh, it, was a, it was a highly academic read on looking at and studying all the different sermons by the apostles, both in Acts and throughout the rest of the New Testament. But he came to a point where he, he articulated what is the core facts that the apostles tried to get across about the gospel of Jesus Christ. What were the, what were the main things that they wanted to say? And he, they had this word that he and other scholars called it. It was called kerygma. They're taken from the Greek word kerygma, which means proclamation. What does it mean? What are the facts that we are proclaiming when we talk about what it means to be a Christian? What are the facts of the Christian message? Well, that is what Peter provides for us this morning. Very quickly and very briefly, he runs through in just a few short verses here, from verse 22 through verse 24, runs very quickly through, I think, the basic content of the Christian message. We begin there in verse 22. He talks about the life of Jesus, how there was miracles and signs and wonders. It's interesting that all the apostles have some different ways of describing Jesus's life in the gospel, but they, then there's some similarities to them. Peter really focuses on the fact that Jesus had all these miracles that attested to the fact that he was from God, proof that he was the Messiah. It's interesting, we often... If you've grown up in the church and you've kind of gotten used to the stories of Jesus, you can kind of look at all of his miracles and the signs and wonders that he did, and he kind of becomes ho-hum, right? It's like, oh, that's just a run-of-the-mill day for Jesus. But think about how different Jesus' life from yours and mine. Think about the greatest thing you've ever done. Let's say you hit that that shot in your high school game, and you take every opportunity— that great moments where you can you just bring it up every time you have an opportunity that great time maybe it was the time you played the hero and you actually got to you dragged someone from the water and so you bring that up all the time we all have these maybe one or two bright shining moments in our life where we play the hero or we do something great and grand well if you go through the gospels you look to see that jesus is healing people of leprosy, and of people who are lame, people who are, are dead are being raised to life. We have all kinds of miracles that Jesus is doing, and that's simply a run-of-the-mill sort of day for Jesus. These miracles, these signs, and these wonders are pointing to something more than simply that he was a man, something more than that, that he was something greater than that. So we have the signs and wonders of Jesus, this flight in his life lived out in front of us. We also have Peter pointing out that Jesus' death on the cross I'm not going to go into this too much but we simply say you see here that he just simply mentions the fact that Jesus died on the cross and that Jesus' death was not a surprise to God or to Jesus at all but instead it was not only foreknown it was planned from the foundations of the earth that Jesus would die for sins it was no accident that Jesus went to the cross It did not scare God the Father that that suddenly happened. But he also says, it's interesting here, And this little tiny bit, he's not trying to give a a theology of atonement or a theology of the cross here, but he simply says that this is not a surprise to God. This is part of God's plan that Jesus died on the cross, but also that those who put him to death, they are guilty for that sin of putting Jesus on the cross. So we see the cross mentioned. That's a significant part of the gospel, obviously. Then we come to the resurrection. We have the resurrection here. And we're going to go into that more in just a moment in our second point. But simply this, he shows that, that Jesus' burial is temporary versus David's burial is permanent. That Jesus is, and so Jesus rises from the dead to defeat death. Then we have the ascension. The ascension links the work to Christ's work on the and Pentecost where it says he is exalted and raised up to the right hand of God the Father. And then we have the sending of the Spirit's. This is, if you were to look and outline the life of Jesus in this way, this, is quite, this, this covers it pretty well. That he had lived a perfectly righteous life. Who he was it was attested to by his miracles and his signs and his wonders. He died an atoning death. He rose a justifying resurrection. He ascended to be king over all the earth, and then he sends his spirits. That is a great description of the gospel. A, a nutshell of what Christians believe You know, there's this great creed that we went through, I think it was last summer, it's called the Apostles' Creed. Now, do the apostles all get together and write an ancient statement of faith? No. We call the Apostles' Creed the Apostles' Creed because as people look through the New Testament and they see what the apostles taught, this is what they taught. These same things from the very beginning, from the very first sermon. If you look in the Apostles' Creed, it says there, we believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. And then it dives into the Jesus part. And in Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Son of God, who was born of the Virgin Mary, lived a perfect life, died under a Pilate, was risen to the dead, and seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And then it goes into the spirits. The very same things that the Christian church states very clearly in the Apostles' Creed, and it has stated for nearly 2,000 years, what they believe was stated here right at the very beginning. So what does it mean to proclaim the gospel? Well, it means to proclaim this content right here, the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and sending of the spirits. That is the gospel, at least in, from one angle of it. So that's what we see. The basic content of the Christian message involves those components. But Peter goes deeper into the gospel this morning and focuses on one key critical aspect And makes one pivotal claim that he's going to focus in on this morning. And that's the second thing I want to look at. And that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Peter goes into it this way. It's interesting. He mentions just in passing Jesus' kind of signs and wonders in his righteous life. And he mentions the cross, which for us, as we see later on in the rest of the New Testament, is so central, the gospel, Peter merely kind of glosses over it rather rapidly. And what he says here is he's just trying to, to make sure that everyone in the crowd understands that the Jesus that he's going to be talking about in the resurrection is the Jesus talked about in verse 22 and verse 23. Look at verse 22 with me, and look at how Peter goes out of his way to show how they know who Jesus is. He says this, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, he pinpoints him within his historicity that he came from a particular town and place, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. He's making sure, he's saying that Jesus, you know, the guy who did miracles for a couple of years, that guy you heard about. Yeah, that's who I'm talking about. And in case you didn't get it there, he goes on to talk about the cross a little more. And he says, the cross, Jesus, who you crucified. So you know who we're, I'm not stuttering, Peter is saying. We know who we're talking about here because he's about to give a kind of a mind-blowing aspect of the news here. Jesus did some great miracles and wonders and signs, and that was pretty you know, mind-exploding as it was, and then he died on a cross, and if that was the end of the story, that'd be like, wow, that was kind of a weird thing, How that stuff that that guy did, but that's not where the story ended, is it? And so Peter is suddenly is gonna go, that guy who you knew, who was a historical man who actually walked on this earth that guy, he rose from the dead. You know why he's making a big deal about that guy? He also says it He says it two or three times in this passage. He says, this Jesus, to make sure there's no other Jesus we're being confused with, this Jesus was risen from the dead. You know why he's wanting to make this clear? It's because it was not common for people to be risen from the dead. And so he's, he's wanting to say that this guy who you knew who you saw, who walked among you, who you, you could talk to him, and you felt him, and you touched him. This man rose from the dead. It's interesting. There's a liberal scholar that many of you may know the name of. His name is Bart Ehrman. Um, much of the scholarship that is um, that by, by Dan Brown, who wrote the book uh, The Da Vinci Code, he gets a lot of his stuff. He's learned a lot of stuff from Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman's a liberal theologian at Duke uh, uh, Divinity School. Um, in Durham, and he, he, but he's also a great, very well-learned scholar, and, but he, is, he has said that he doesn't think that Jesus is divine. He has pushed that off. He thinks that this, all, all these things about what the disciples believe are things of their own imaginations, but what he does push and what he says is ridiculous is when he runs across people who don't seem to think that Jesus was actually a real historical person. People will come to him and say, you don't really believe. Obviously, you don't believe that Jesus lived, right? And he'll go, what are you talking about? Of course Jesus lived. There's too much evidence of this fact. There were too many witnesses to his life. Now he says, I don't believe the witnesses when they say that he rose from the dead and that he ascended to heaven and all that kind of stuff. But he was an actual historical man. And that is what Peter is getting across here. So this historical man, this Jesus, what happened? He rose from the dead. Pick up in verse 24. I'm gonna read through verse 32. I'm going to pick up in verse 24 and also pick, um, jump down to verse 32 really quickly. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him, Jesus, to be held by it being death. Death could not hold him. And then in verse 32, it says this, this Jesus, God raised up, and what does he say? And we are all witnesses. Here's the key claim that Peter is diving down into. That yes, Jesus did wonderful signs and miracles, and that was great. And yes, Jesus died on the cross. But here's the mind-blowing news today on the day of Pentecost. This Jesus rose from the dead. This is at the core of the Christian message, and we must believe. Because without it, Paul says, that we are to be pitied, that all this is foolishness, that we're all singing to the air here, and we all look like idiots if Jesus did not rise from the dead. This is central to the message of Christianity. Now, what I want to point out here and dive into this for just a moment, how critical it is the resurrection, and dive and look at the resurrection just for a few minutes, and look at this phrase that couldn't be easily missed, but we shouldn't miss it, at the beginning of verse 24. Why, it, says, it answers the question, why was Jesus raised from the dead? Why? The answer, because it was not possible for death to hold on to him, it says. It was not possible for death to hold on to him. The emphasis of this statement is actually illustrated by the, the one that precedes even that one. It says this, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Now, it's using a Greek word there called odinus. The Greek word odinus, which is all, in all the other places it's used in the New Testament, refers to birth pangs the pangs of giving birth to a child. And that is the imagery, that is the illustration that it's saying here. Now, listen, some of you have um, been in the labor and delivery room. Uh, Some of you have actually, you know, performed the labor and delivery. I've just been present for the labor and delivery. Some of you may experience this in the future. Well, guys, let me just give you a heads-up warning. And here's sometimes how it goes. There reaches a certain point in which there is a point of no return. And you'll hear these words, I have to push. And you better hope you're in a hospital bed and there is an OBGY in there. Because if it's just you, you're a goner. I mean, this is, it's, it's you mano a mano now. All right? There comes a certain point in labor and delivery in which the body is going to expel that child. And that is the imagery, the very graphic imagery that the New Testament is giving for death and how Jesus could not re, he, death could not hold on to him anymore. Like the womb cannot hold to a child whose time it is to be birthed, death could no longer hold to Jesus. He could not be stopped. It is inevitability. The ultimate power in the universe, as we think about it, is death. In a human experience, the ultimate power is death. Nobody gets out from under death. But what we see here, and what is so miraculous, and what is so mind-boggling about the gospel and the good news about it, is we have found one who has finally bested death. And not only did he best death, but it was impossible for death to defeat him and to hold on to him. Why? Why couldn't death hold on to Jesus? Here's the answer. This isn't necessarily in the text, but this is where we find in the rest of the New Testament. We'll dive back into the text in just a second. Because death had no claim on Jesus. Why did death enter the world? Death entered the world because of sin. If you get rid of sin, you get rid of death. And so what Jesus did when he comes and he atones for ours, he takes our sin upon himself, and he takes the full wrath of God upon himself to the point where his physical body dies. He has drank the cup of wrath to the last drop, but he has taken care of death. He has atoned for it. He has cleansed death. It has been washed away. The wrath of God has been fully poured out. There's no more wrath left for it to be poured out upon Jesus. And so death had no claim upon him. 1 Corinthians 15 says this. He asks, Paul says, oh, death, where is your sting? He taunts death because when you take away sin from our lives, death no longer has a sting for us. It is no longer permanent. How long did Jesus stay dead? Three days. It was no longer permanent just like those. And this is the good news of the gospel, that for all those who are connected to Christ Jesus That death no longer, it is now merely a door. It is merely a moment. It is merely something that you walk through for a brief moment and then it's gone. You see, the experience that Jesus had where death could no longer cling to him. Listen, death's gonna take you one day, but it's gonna hold on to you like we hold on to water. That's how death's gonna hold on to you. It will not be able to grab hold of you. Permanently, but you will slip through it into something greater and more beautiful and more wondrous, and that comes courtesy of Jesus and his defeat of death at the resurrection. That is what Peter is saying. This Jesus, this is unbelievable good news. If you belong to him, you won't be able to stay dead either. That is good news, right? Last week we lose a brother, a special needs brother, whose life did not look perfect all the time. He smoked himself to the grave. That brother gets a glorified body because of this. That is the good news of the gospel. But in all this, Peter is driving down. He's wanted to say that you see the shock in all of this message. But it's actually, even that is not the main point. That is the key claim here. But the key claim is pointing to something even greater than that, or something more foundational than that. In all this, the point of Peter's sermon, if you were to read, if you're at sermons, and if you're taught, I you went to a seminary, and you're taught how to write a sermon, one of the key things you do before you begin to sit down and actually write the sermon out, as you're, you've done your study notes, and you, you ask this question, what is the main point of the text? What is the main point of the sermon? And, and the terminology in the seminary I went to was, what's the big idea What is the big idea that Peter is pointing here? It's not the cross and the theology of the atonement. It's not even the resurrection, as big a deal as that is. But these things point to something else, a more profound point that we see in the Christian message. And that profound point is found in verse 36, at the very end, where he ends his his sermon. Verse 36, he says this, "'Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain "'that God has made him,' speaking of Jesus,' that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. Verse 36 provides the climax. It is the big idea. It is the point of the sermon that he is wanting to get across, that this Jesus, that the resurrection, that the cross, that the signs and wonders all point to the fact, are all proof that Jesus is Lord and Christ. This is what he preached in our midst. Now, let's look at both of those in order to understand the point of this sermon and to drive down deeper. This is the key claim of Christianity upon your life. This is the proposition that you must either accept or reject. When you looked at the resurrection and the cross, you must say, okay, either is my Lord, he's my Christ, or I want nothing to do with him. So first, let's look at these. Let's look at first that Jesus is the Christ. And the phrase, you've heard the the phrase, Jesus Christ. i talked about this before, but we often kind of just gloss over that. You you hear it so often, Jesus Christ, as if Christ is merely Jesus' middle name. Or that he is a southern boy with a a double name. No, Christ is not not Jesus' middle name. It actually refers to his office, a role that he played. Christos, the Greek word for Christ, was simply the, the translation from the Hebrew word messiah that the, all the Hebrew Old Testament, what they are longing for and what they are looking forward to and what the prophets of old kept coming and saying is, there's a Messiah coming. There's one who's going to come save you, who's going to be the perfect king of Israel, who's going to free sa- uh, Israel from their sins and from their enslavement and from Rome and from making it into a great nation. That's what they have longing for, the Messiah. And so what Peter is doing here is he is pointing to the resurrection and saying, this is the proof that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, he does it in a very Jewish sort of way. And here's what I mean by that. He points back to the Old Testament. He points to the Hebrew Bible, to the Jewish Bible, and he points back to Psalm 16. So let's look there. Picking up in verse 25 is where he begins to quote David from Psalm 16. It says this, For David says concerning him, talking about Jesus, and this is the quote from Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Okay, who, who wrote Psalm 16? David. Now key phrase there, verse 27, you will not let my soul be abandoned to Hades. Hades is the terminology for the grave or another word for it would be sheol in Hebrew language, or let your holy one see corruption, which is you won't let my body decay in death. Now, here's the issue, though. That's not who David is talking about, or at least that's not how Peter takes it. Peter says who David is talking about here is Jesus, and he gives the reason as to why. Verse 29, he says, brothers, here's Peter's argument. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried in his tomb with us today. He's saying, listen, David says, God, you won't, let my, you won't abandon my soul to Sheol. You won't uh, let my body see decay. And yet Peter goes, but David can't actually be talking about himself because he died and we can go hang out by his grave. We can dig up his bones. His, we can go. We can, we're here in Jerusalem. We can go see it. So this song can't be talking about him you can go, you can go, you know, you can go to Illinois and you can go see Abraham Lincoln's grave. You can know that he's died. You can big, dig up his bones. That's what he's saying about David. So David is not talking about himself, he must be talking about someone else. The question is then asked then who is David talking about here? And Peter answers that question as well. Verse 30. He says, This being therefore a prophet, he says, David is a prophet. And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his own descendants on his throne, God had come to David and said, there will be a descendant of yours, a son of David, who will sit on the throne of Israel and over the world for all of eternity. Okay, that's the promise. Verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that the Christ was not abandoned to Hades, nor the Christ see his flesh corrupted. You see what Peter's doing here. He's doing his, he's putting, he's, this is a Jewish man who knows his Hebrew Bible, and he's looking back at Psalm 16, he goes, this makes no sense if David is talking about himself. And he's putting two and two together, and Peter's going, you know, if, if, if Jesus didn't see corruption because he was raised after three days, I haven't seen many resurrections. Let me put two and two together here. David is talking about Jesus, and if, David is talking about the Christ, and De- Jesus is the one who was raised from the dead and doesn't see corruption, then Jesus must be the Christ. Did you follow that? Barely, right? He's saying, very propositionally, that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, you and I aren't in shock and awe about that, but the people of Israel, the, his audience would have been. Because this is who they have longed for, for all of their history, that there is one who is going to come, the perfect king, the, the savior of their nation, and Peter is saying, that's him. Remember him, the guy who did all those miracles and wonders and signs, and the guy, uh uh-oh, you killed? Bad news, but here's the good news. He rose again from the dead. And they would be going, well, that's also bad news because if he can be risen from the dead, that's not good news for us. We're gonna get to how they get out of that next week. But this is the argument that he is saying that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the Holy One, the salvation of the world, the salvation of Israel. See, it's seen in his resurrection. If you can defeat death, you're a pretty good savior, right? And here's the question, you see, and I'll get to this again later. All of us have something, we, all of us are serving some sort of Messiah. We all have something in our lives, whether it's yourself or some sort of relationship or some sort of political party or some thing, money, whatever it may be, that we're saying, that will save me. That will get me out of the jam. Let me ask you this. Is your Messiah strong enough and powerful enough to get you out of death? That's the claim of Peter. That this Messiah can defeat death. That's not all he says. He says Jesus is the Christ. That's the point. But he also says this he also says that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Sometimes people call Jesus Lord and they just mean he's an important guy. He's my Lord. He means a lot to me. That's nice. The Greek equivalent of the Old Testament name for God, which was Yahweh in the Old Testament, Yahweh or Jehovah, is Lord. In fact, you'll know that this is in the Old Testament that they, they're talking about the, the, Greek, the Hebrew word underneath that the word that's being translated Lord is in the English it'll be Lord will be L-O-R-D all in caps. And underneath that is Yahweh or Jehovah that's what Lord is. Lord signifies authority and deity. We, talk, we sang and worship about the king this morning, how Jesus is the perfect king. And that is what Peter is claiming here. In short, the claim of Christianity, the point of this message is not only that Jesus is the Christ, he's the savior, but also that he is the Lord. He is the sovereign king over the world. That's what G- that Peter is proclaiming. And that is the point. The point he is driving at, he drives at it via another psalm. He knows his audience, right? He's speaking to a bunch of people who are Hebrews, but to Jewish men and women. Picking up in verse 32, Peter quotes another psalm. He says this, This Jesus raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, so that's a throne, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, so David says this, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So once again, Peter takes the same approach. He looks back and he quotes David in Psalm 110. And there in that Psalm, it says, Lord said to my lords, What's going on here? All right, the Lord, the first Lord is capital L-O-R-D. It is Yahweh. The Lord in small caps, the second, it's talking about the Jehovah, the the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The second Lord, with just one capital, the L, is referring to Adonai, which is simply the general term for one who is over you, who is your authority, but it's also a general term for God as well. Okay, So Yahweh is the specific name. It is the name that God gave. He said, I am who I am and referring to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God over all of Israel, the personal name of God. But Adonai is the more general name for God in the Hebrew. And so what he's saying here is, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai. So what David is saying here in this psalm is, the Lord, my Yahweh, is saying to Adonai, someone who is greater greater than me, that this person is going to sit at my right hand's. So who is the second Lord? What Peter is saying is the second Lord is Jesus himself. See, we know this in large part because Jesus has gone back to Psalm 110 in his very own ministry. and Matthew 22, near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, not long before his arrest and crucifixion, there was a time where the leaders of the Jewish people, the religious leaders of the Jewish people, came to Jesus, and they're trying to trick him with questions. But Jesus turns the table on them, and he asks them this question what do you think about the Christ? He says, who is the Christ supposed to be? And then he asked the second question, whose son is the Christ? Jesus queried. The thought they answered, they, they, what they have to answer is they say the, the Christ is going to be the son of David. And, they were, and so Jesus continued. He said, okay, how is it then that David, speaking to the Spirit, calls him Lord? In other words, what Jesus is saying is that second Lord, the Adonai, if it's a son of David and merely a son of David, David would not refer to him as an Adonai. An Adonai is someone greater than David. Therefore, what Jesus is saying is, listen, he cannot merely, the Christ cannot merely be a son of David. He cannot merely be a man. He has to be an Adonai as well. He has to be divine he has to be fully God, and he has to be fully man, and that is what Peter is saying about Jesus, that Jesus is not only the son of David, he's also the son of God as well. This is the very thing that many of the apostles proclaim throughout the Gospels. This Messiah, this Jesus, this Christ was going to be no mere man. He was going to be the man God, the God who took on flesh himself. This is why Peter proclaims to the crowd that if Jesus is the Son of God, he is the Lord. He is God incarnate. He is God in the flesh. Christianity differs from all other religions in this way. All the other founders of their religions come and say they point to God. Jesus comes and he points to himself. Now that is audacious. An arrogance and a lie and lunacy unless it's true. And then it's terrifying, because we killed them. Then it's terrifying. Christianity differs from all the religions. The resurrection proves and shows and reveals that Jesus is the Son of God. Death could not hold on to him. The resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus, they are witnesses to this fact, that he is the Son of God. And there's other places in the the New Testament where this is drawn out. Let me just give you a couple of them. Romans 1, 1 through 4. This is how Paul begins his theological magnum opus in this way. He says this, I am Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which God had promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead... In other words, what Paul is saying is, if you get risen, if you rise from the dead, if you defeat death, you're the Lord. You're the Son of God. It proves that you are the Lord. Because you, as a, if we were merely a mere man, would be defeated by death. Men get crushed by death. But Jesus is a man, and he's God, and so he doesn't get crushed by death. He crushes it instead. Philippians 2, 8 through 11, and looking at the implication for this, for us, in the New Testament, Philippians 2, 8 through 11 says this, and being found in human form, the, the man part, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is who? The Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the point of the Christian message. Listen, the gospel, all those components, the incarnation, the perfect life, the atoning death, the resurrection, the ascension, the sending of the Holy Spirit, all point to this fact that Jesus is the Messiah that we need, the Savior of the world, and the King of all kings. All those components of the gospel point to this truth. And we've actually come full circle in Acts as well. Because remember, this is the second part of Peter's sermon. Peter ends the first part of it Acts 2.21, and talking about the, 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 the prophecy from Joel 2, and it ends this way, and all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, guess what? Then he goes on to say, guess who is the Lord? It's Jesus, the one who did the mighty works in your presence, the one who died, who you put to death, but the one who defeated death and now sends the spirit from the throne room of God. That is the Lord. And so when we say, The gospel message is call upon the name of Jesus. The mystery is revealed. Who is the Lord? It's Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David. And so here's, we're coming to a close. A few minutes of application or just simply a question and a point if Jesus is indeed the Lord and he is Christ. that, That means two things for us. Very, very simply. One is you must submit to him. A king, a king is a monarch. A king, you're you're not living in a republic or a democracy. It's a monarchy when you have a king. And what the king says goes. And if Jesus is Lord, if he is king and sovereignly rules over all things, it means that you should bow to his will for your life. Now, this is difficult. This means you obey his words. That means you obey what he says about your sexuality it means you obey what he says about whether you stay married or not. It means you obey the way he calls you to parent. It means you obey in the way you obey or disobey your civil authorities. It means you obey in the way you respect or and honor your parents. And all of these ways you submit to him as king. Whatever he asks of you, also, you get to do. And it is a joyous thing because of the next part, which is he's your savior. He's not just your lord; he's your savior. He's the Christ. But as a joyous and you submit to whatever he calls you to do and wherever he calls you to go. Let me ask you this in regards to your submission to Christ Jesus. Are you willing to thank God for whatever he brings into your life? Or do you complain to him constantly? Is he the authority in your life? Is he the king in your life or are you? Or what is that area in your life where he is not king? God, you can touch everything and all, but remember the rich young ruler... God, I'll obey you. I'll do wonderful things for you, but don't touch my money. What's that for you? What is the thing that Jesus, the king, can't touch? That's the part of you that needs to be submitted. The second part application of Jesus is Lord and Christ is that we should trust him. Very simply, believe in him and trust him. When the New Testament talks about believing and not simply talking about an intellectual assent of who he is, it means that you lean on him with the entirety of your life. To bow, is a also, to, bow to him is one of submission, but it's also one of dependence. It's to say, I'm, I am lost without you. I have nothing without you. To confess the Lordship and the, Christ, the Messiahship of Jesus, to profess that all good things that you have comes from him. So you rely on Jesus. So to close this morning, I simply ask this question. This is, a, this is the evangelical question. You've heard the point of the message. that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Savior, and he is the Lord. And the question is this, is he, is he your Savior and is he your Lord? And we'll talk about this more in detail next week, about what it looks like to submit to him in repentance and belief. But the question in, the, in this moment, after having looked at the message of the Christian faith, The question must be put before you. Is he your Lord and is he your Savior? By the way, they're a package deal. Right? My name is Andrew Henley. You can't say, I I like the Andrew part, and I want you to leave the Henley person at the door. They come together. My wife and I are a team. You can't say, hey, we want you, but we don't want your wife. Right? Right? You can't have Jesus as your Savior unless you have him as your Lord, and I actually don't think you can experience him as your Savior unless you experience him as your Lord as well. So, would you say, Jesus, come into my life? Listen, you need to do some evaluation, perhaps. What are the things that you trust in? What are the, the lords that you are serving? And you might, you might ask this question, like the question I asked earlier. Is, is the Lord that you're serving, whoever or whatever that may be, is that Lord strong enough to defeat death? Because your life may be, your Lord may be serving you really well right now, right? I mean, your life might be pretty hunky-dory. You're going, this is pretty good. Serving financial gain is working out for me. I'm comfortable. I'm able to have a good life. This is great. Well, death kind of wipes all that out, doesn't it? So what are you trusting in? Some of you are having a bad life. And maybe it's your own doing because you're the king in your life or maybe you're serving some other king and perhaps you need to evaluate that. And would you, listen, I'm not guaranteeing if you evaluate this, you're going to come to the place where you're going to go, yes, I'll submit. I hope you will. But I would say, aren't you enticed to at least look into this Jesus? Because no other religion and no other God claims what he claims. At the very, at the very, At the very least, you would say, I have to check this out, because no one else, no other religion has the audacity to say the same things he does. And it may be too good to be true, but I'm at least want to find out if it's too good to be true. So could you do that? Next week we'll talk about repentance and belief, what it looks to submit your life to Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, I I, I confess that my expectation is that most people here are Christians already, and they knew this message, and for them this is a reminder. But Lord, I pray that some of my questions might agitate them as they evaluate their life. That Lord, they would have to um, go to their spouse today, or their kids today, or a friend today, and say, you know what, or maybe their community group and say, I don't, I'm not submitting to the Lord in this area of my life, and I need to, re- I need to repent of that. Lord, there are those in this room, though, who, who may not know you, who may never have submitted to you, who are following some other king. God, I pray that you would reveal the, 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 the lameness of their king, how pathetic their Lord is, And God, I pray that by your spirit, you would reveal yourself to be the God who can defeat death, to the God as the God who can give life, as the God who reigns and rules over all things. So Spirit of the living God, I, I pray that you would work in this room right now, not later on today. Lord, that'd be great if it was later on today, but right now. That your spirit would go out and move and work to lead people to repentance to turn away from all of their idols and all of their kings and all of their gods and turn towards King Jesus. So I pray that that would happen today. Lord, people would sit and pray before you and lay before you their lives and say, every part of my life is yours. Not one part of it do I leave back, but I give it all to you and I trust in you because you're the one who has proven through the defeat of death that you're worthy of trust. So God, do that in my own heart. Do that in the hearts of those here in this room. Spirit of God, move and work. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.